Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For all the traveling I've done around the world, there's still plenty I've yet to experience, like Ecuador. One of South America's true gems is Ecuador, with a breathtaking capital city perched high in the Andes. Exploring Ecuador, we'll learn about Amazon River resorts run by Quechua natives and plot a course for Charles Darwin's discoveries in the remarkable Galapagos Islands. In the hour ahead, Julian Smith will introduce us to the country he knows and loves so well. Then, we'll have some fun getting to know Jennifer Cox, author of Around the World in 80 Dates. Jennifer quit her job in Britain and embarked on a round-the-world trip in search of Mr. Wright. She finally found him in, of all places, the Nevada desert. We'll hear about Jennifer's amorous adventures as we ponder romance on the road. Darwin, Cupid, and lots more coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Imagine traveling around the world not in 80 days, but in 80 dates. We're going to meet a single woman who set out to find Mr. Wright. She spent six months dating men in 18 different countries and wrote a book to tell the tale. Coming up, Jennifer Cox talks about around the world in 80 dates and a capital at 10,000 feet above sea level, luxurious Amazon hideouts, and some of the most incredible natural wonders anywhere on an island wonderland. It's all Ecuador. And it's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. If you want to get in on the conversation, give us a phone call. Our number is 877-333-7425. That's 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And let's go right to Eric in Austin, Texas. Hi, Eric. Um, my wife and I want to take a one-year trip around the world, and uh, we're planning to pack light, and uh, we want to sort of keep the drain of travel down by uh, renting an apartment in each region we uh, visit. And uh, I had a few questions. Sure. First being, uh, how would you go about finding uh, good cultural fit accommodations, as well as learning the language, and then just sort of general uh, travel advice you'd have for this kind of extended vacation. Boy, a one-year trip. Uh, that is so exciting, but you do have to be careful. You don't underestimate the fatigue factor there as far as culture shock goes and all these new things, you know. You can be um, thinking, oh, we'll do India, and then we'll do China, and then we'll do Bali and Java. But uh, in reality, after a few months, uh, if you're not careful... You'd hardly cross the street to see another temple, you know. <laughs> so I think you want to, um, I, I would uh, highly recommend uh, thinking careful about structuring your trip in a way where you start with the moderate uh, countries and you get into the more exotic and challenging countries. And I would also remind you that you can always get a break um, if you go to a bigger city or a fancy international class hotel or something like that. And I found that was very helpful for me when I was traveling in South Asia. Uh, occasionally, you just need a little break and you need to go to a place where people aren't staring at you and so on. And you do that by uh, stepping into a, a fancy, you know, intercontinental or Marriott Hotel uh, courtyard and having your iced tea there. Um, but I think your idea of getting an apartment in each place makes a lot of sense. Good. And, and how would you go about finding an apartment? I once tried to do this in London and found that uh, I ran into some problems trying to get a short-term let. Well, I think a good resource is local tourist boards and local um, newspapers and so on. I tried to get an apartment in London also and found it uh, just in a adver local advertising. Uh, these days you can do that on the web quite easily. Guidebooks generally don't help people like you who have such a disgustingly wonderful long vacation, you know. <laughs> So most of us guidebook writers are thinking of people are going to be staying in hotels for a day here and a day there. Uh, you're looking for a week or two weeks at a time. But remember, most countries do have self-catering kind of apartments or flats that come with kitchens, and they rent by the week rather than by the day. And obviously those are much cheaper, and not to mention you get your own kitchen. Great. I don't really have any great tips on how you would – in what country are you thinking of, for instance, to, to find these apartments? Um, well, we'd like to do hopefully something in Italy for Europe and then uh, maybe Peru in South America. Right. And then we're still sort of planning the Asia portion. Yeah. In the cheaper countries, uh, when I was in uh, Thailand or India, 
you know, you would just book into a nice hotel, or a nice local-style hotel, and it's very inexpensive, and you'd stay there for a week, and you'd get to know the people, and, and that works very nicely. But in the more expensive countries, that's where you'll be glad to have your own, your own apartment or your own hotel, and you'll save a lot of money that way. Remember, Europeans go to one place, and they stay there for two weeks. Uh, the uh, If a Tuesday must be Belgium kind of frantic American-style vacation makes no sense at all to a lot of Europeans. I've been in towns in Europe where people are honored who've been spending their two-week, their fortnight vacation for 10 years in a row. You know, at the dinner, they're having a, a folk show, and at the dinner, they, they stop and they acknowledge with a little award or a, a bottle of wine or something the family that's been coming there for two weeks every summer for the last decade. So it's a different concept of travel. Okay. And then uh, anything on language? You know, 20 years ago, it would have been more of an issue, but these days, English is the language of travel. I was just in the airport in Amsterdam, and there was only one language on the signs in the new airport at Amsterdam, and it's all English, not even Dutch. The only Dutch I saw was on the sign for the first aid station. And in India, of course, the whole Indian subcontinent, English is the language of travel. And I've traveled enough in Asia to know that English is also the common denominator there as far as how people get around. So we're lucky we speak the the language that works. You shouldn't have any trouble with that. You need to develop a, a knack of choosing people who are likely to speak English in some of the more difficult corners. Young, well-educated people, people in tourism and so on are likely to speak English and help you out. Okay. Good luck. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. You bet. We've got Ray on the line in New Jersey. Ray, thanks for the call. Oh, it's my pleasure. What are my you thinking pleasure. about, Ray? Well, uh, I've uh, been watching your show, and I really enjoy it. And I was, uh, because I was wondering uh, uh, why you guys hadn't uh, gone into U- the Ukraine or Russia, or else I hadn't seen any shows. That's right. Well, we'd love to, but it's, you know, Eastern Europe is opening up, and uh, Americans are taking it sort of one step at a time. And now, well, since the fall of the Iron Curtain and so on, all of the former Warsaw Pact countries are not Actually, they're no longer Eastern Europe, are they? They're really Central Europe. Well, you know what I found amazing about I went to the Ukraine. I've been there twice. I was there in January, and I was also there last July. And the the country is in such a rapid transition from the uh, the Soviet system to the free market. It's it's really incredible. You you see both cultures, the one that's receding and the one that's emerging. Wow! And you've been there twice in the last year. Yeah. Why do you go to Ukraine of all places? Well, I met a girl online there, right. and uh, I went there to meet her, and not knowing really what to expect, but uh, I was very, very surprised. I found a people who are very pro-American, huh. very friendly. Wow, uh, you met a girl online in the Ukraine, and you traveled all the way from New Jersey to go visit her. Oh, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's great. Is she in, like, Kiev or what? No, she's in Odessa. Odessa. Now, that's a resort on the Black Sea, right? Well, it's, it is a resort, yes. Uh, it's been a very popular uh, uh, place to vacation uh, for, m- for many Russians and Ukrainians, and uh, even during the Soviet period, they, uh, that was uh, that whole area, Odessa, Simferopol, Yalta, the Crimea, uh, very, very uh, beautiful uh, beach, uh, oh. very natural. That's where all the big shots from Moscow would go for a break, isn't it? Yeah, a- Absolutely. And uh, it was just wild just uh, hanging out on the beach in July, uh, looking out onto the Black Sea, which uh, it really looks gray when you look at it. <laughs> well, you step into the water, and it's, just, it's very clear. Hmm. Uh, there's not much development, as you, you know, you'd see in uh, uh, beaches in Italy. Is your uh, feeling that most of the tourism is on the Black Sea coast? I would say that, uh, uh, according to what I was told... Uh, by by people, you know, I tried to mingle. Many people speak English there, which is mm-hmm. was pretty amazing. Um, there isn't that much American tourism coming into Odessa. Most of it comes from uh, Russia, what is now considered Russia, and and Ukraine, and also from uh, other parts of Europe. Did you need a visa to go there? Yes. Has it, was that hard to get? Not at all. You got uh, it from the Ukrainian embassy in America. Yeah, I, my travel agent took care of it for Okay, me. and then uh, did you find it was, uh, did you stay healthy while you were there? You ate what you wanted to? Oh, yeah. The the, the quality of the food is, is excellent. Hmm. It, was, it was pretty amazing, uh, the, the the restaurants there in, in Odessa. I mean, there's hmm. so many of them. What were the prices like, Ray? I would say about the same as a, as a good restaurant in New Jersey. Okay, so not really cheap, but, but reasonable. But reasonable. Did you feel uh, safe walking around on the streets? Oh, that was the amazing thing. The first time I went there, 
I was, uh, one night I had nothing to do. Uh, my friend was uh, uh, off doing something else, so I decided to go to one of the clubs mm-hmm. and uh, just to hang out, and people are, are walking along the streets 2 o'clock in the morning. It's nothing. Now, you as an American walking the streets of a city in the Ukraine, I mean, you must have been a bit of a spectacle. Um, well, I tried not to, um, to to stick out, but I couldn't help it because my clo- the clothing that I was wearing was a bit different from what the the average Ukrainian would wear in the summer. Uh, yeah, but you could dress like a Cossack and they'd still know you're an American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, especially did, when they see your, your white sneakers. Yeah. Um, many of the men will not wear shorts in the summertime. They still wear long pants. Oh, yeah, and no matter how hot it is. No matter how hot it is. So you, you wear your white sneakers and your shorts and you're pretty close. And my shorts. Or sometimes I wore sandals, but the shorts gave, gave me away. Now, generally, you were you were received warmly, and they knew you were American. Absolutely. Uh, the first time I went there, it was my first uh, uh, overseas trip, and no, actually, it was my second. Uh, but it was it was my first trip that I had taken care of myself as far as the arrangements. Wow. And I made some some mistakes, and I actually lost my uh, hotel room. Huh. And I didn't have a room, and I just happened to that was in back in July. And what happened was I got there a day late because I forgot about that time difference thing. And uh, the former President Kuchma was in town, and uh, those rooms were snapped up very quickly. But my the man who drove me from the airport spent four hours with me. Just to help you out? Just to help me out and found me uh, a wonderful hotel room a couple of blocks from the Black Sea. Isn't that something? Does it feel um, stable from a political point of view? Yes, they are very disciplined, the Ukrainians. I, I can't speak for the Russians because I haven't been right. to Russia, but my gut feeling with the Ukrainians is, is that they are very highly disciplined people. Now, from a sightseeing point of view, there's not any earth-shaking sights. You just kind of wander around all day, don't you? Well, yeah, that's what you do, but the amazing thing is that if, as you wander around this city, you see this beautiful architecture that's being restored. Oh, that's great. And at the same time, you see new construction going up all over the city. Uh, Huge cranes putting up these 15, 20, 30-story buildings. It's incredible. Wow. Here's Ray. First time on his own outside of the United States, he goes to the Ukraine. And you met a woman on the Internet. You flew all the way there. Has it been worth the trouble? Uh, It was no trouble at all. Uh, It it didn't turn out to be a love connection, but I met a friend over there. That's cool. And I made other friends, uh, because on my second trip, I learned a few things, and this time I rented an apartment. And now instead of going to Ireland or Denmark or Salzburg, you go to the Ukraine. Oh, yeah. And Mm -hmm. in fact, I'm planning to go to uh, Siberia in the next few months. I want to visit the city of Novosibirsk, which is the capital of Siberia. Ray, you're one odd traveler, and I think it's fantastic. I imagine you're having some rich experiences. Oh, yeah. For me, it's an adventure. Uh, I, don't, I cannot go to a beach and just hang out under the sun all day. I like to go to places where I can meet people and interact and, and get to know them. It fascinates me. And, and you, the Ukraine is a great place because they are very, very friendly people. Well, you've got an inside track because you're going to places that uh, the rest of your uh, fellow countrymen choose not to go. And that's a a good travel tip right there. Ray from New Jersey, give us a call when you get back from Siberia, okay? Okay, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling together to Ecuador. And I've got on the line with me the author of The Moon Handbook to Ecuador, Julian Smith. Julian, thanks for uh, joining us. Great, thanks for having me. Ecuador. Now, how did you get to be uh, so enamored by Ecuador? Well, I uh, spent a lot of time in South America when I got out of college, and when I eventually hooked up with the moon, uh, they wanted to expand into South America, and we kind of settled on Ecuador. Hard to write a guidebook to a place you don't really like. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, I just I learned to love this country after going there so many times. Okay, how would I? Let's say I got a, a week and I want to enjoy Ecuador and I want to do it uh, uh, with a nice variety, or two weeks or something like that. Give us a little rundown. Okay, well, if you wanted to do the highlights, um, definitely the Galapagos Islands is, is the highlight of any trip to South America, for that matter. You have to go there on a guided tour, so that would take at least a week. So that would leave you another week. You could probably spend maybe three days up in the Andes and Quito and Cuenca and maybe take a four-day jungle trip down in the Amazon. Wow, that sounds a lot of variety. Yeah, covering a lot of ground. Well, first let's talk about the big modern capital, Quito. Is it just a nondescript big modern city with lots of traffic congestion, or does it have charm? Oh, it has a lot of charm. It's actually considered one of the most beautiful cities in Latin America, definitely one of the most beautiful capitals. It's got a uh, colonial heart that was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site that the government has recently cleaned up within the last couple of years. So all the old churches are lit at night, and there's horse carriage rides that go around the plazas. It's really a beautiful place. Wow. How big? How many people in Quito? There's about 2 million. Altitude? Uh, altitude is about 10,000 feet. It's the second highest capital in Latin America. 10,000 feet above sea level. Yeah, it takes a couple of days to get used to. What's it like? Uh, I mean, are there any practical concerns when people uh, fly right into Quito and, and try to run around and travel? You usually want to take it pretty slow the first day or two. I mean, I live in Santa Fe at 7,500 feet, and huh. first couple of days that I go to Quito, I'm, I'm out of breath just going up the stairs. Twice as high as Denver. Yeah. The two-mile-high city, Quito. Yeah. All right. Now, Cuenca is a, a different kind of ambience? Yeah, that's actually a much more old, slow-paced colonial city. It's got, they say it has one church for every Sunday of the year, 52 different churches. Wow. It's got monasteries, convents, museums, and it's also a very popular place to go study Spanish. Now, like Argentina, is most of Ecuador uh, ethnically European, with just little remnants of the uh, people who predated the uh, European, um, you know, the conquistadors, or is it a lot of uh, uh, indigenous peoples? Actually, there's a lot of indigenous people still left. Most of the people in Ecuador are considered a mix of Spanish and indigenous, but probably some 30% of the country is still considered part of a indigenous group, some of which even predated the Inca. They even speak the same language that the Incas spoke, called Quechua. All right. Now, we've got the two big cities, or the two major urban uh, attractions. Uh, you said to go to the Galapagos, you must take a tour. Uh, yeah, they heavily regulate uh, tourism out there just to minimize the impact. Now, Galapagos is entirely a natural uh, travel kind of thing. You're not looking for uh, culture and towns and cities or anything like that. It's just no, no, it's definitely a nature. It's probably one of the top nature tourism destinations in the world. And you can either do it uh, on a budget or you can do it in complete and utter luxury. Take your pick. All right. In a nutshell, tell me the budget option and the expensive option. Uh, well, you ha like I said, you have to go on a guided tour. So usually people sign up for where you live on board a ship for six or seven days, and you can pick a smaller boat with about ten other fellow passengers, or you can go all the way up to a luxury cruise liner with 100 people on it. And any of these would, because it's controlled, they would come with your guides who are also sort of guards for the nature, is that right? Yeah, the guides are very highly trained. Most are bilingual. And uh, yeah, the packages that you buy to tour the Galapagos include everything but airfare for a week, include your food, your guiding. So you fly out there from, generally from Ecuador. Yeah, it's about 1,000 kilometers out in the Pacific Ocean. 600 miles out, so uh, just a, basically an hour or two flight from Quito or what? Yeah, yeah, about two and a half. And what would you pay for a week out there, room and board and teaching included? Um, well, let's see, if you, just if you did on, in the middle of the road, probably about $1,000 roughly, wow. including everything plus airfare. I've heard nothing but good things about the Galapagos from the people who are fortunate enough to get out there. It's an absolutely incredible place. It, yeah. There's nowhere else like it on the world. Wow. You not only get these amazing animals that you get nowhere else in the world, like the, the marine iguanas or the huge turtles up in the highlands, but uh, they're all so completely unafraid of people, you actually have to be careful not to step on anybody as you go down the trails. All right. I'm talking with Julian Smith. He's the author of The Moon Handbook, Ecuador, and that includes the Galapagos Islands. Now, Julian, if you want to go into the interior, you check out the—you actually go over the Continental Divide, right, and you get into the Amazon area? Yeah, you head down east into the headwaters of the Amazon. Is that a headache to get to? 
Not really. There are flights that go directly from Quito to some of the cities uh, on the rivers down in the Amazon, such as Tena or Coca, and from there you can hop on a motorized canoe and go downriver to uh, Luxury Jungle Lodge. All right. Hey, we've got some people online. Let's talk to Wendy at, in Antioch, California. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. I have a friend who's lived in Quito for about 15 years. He uh, teaches at the uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance School. And I was concerned about safety for Americans and safety traveling there in general. Would you recommend that somebody go on a tour rather than try to arrange their own travel? And as a second part of that question, is traveling there by air safe? In other words, do U.S. air carriers go there safely? Uh, well, I'll answer your second part first. Uh, yes, U.S. carriers do go there. I usually fly down on Continental okay. through Houston. It goes straight to Quito. Never had any problems. And in terms of safety, yeah, you know, it's, it, it, luckily it's avoided a lot of the problems that its neighbors have faced in terms of drugs, like Peru and Colombia. You hear a lot say, yeah, Colombia. in the news. But Ecuador, on the whole, is a pretty safe place. I mean, if you, you, know, if you keep an eye open, just like normal, like you're walking down the street in New York City, right. yeah, it's well, okay. Yeah. Now, Wendy, what, what, what reason do you have for being concerned about safety? Have you heard of people who have had a problem? Well, in the last 10 years, my friend has had issues with that apparently every now and then there are political uprisings with the indigenous people. And I think there was some issue it's where their campus had to be closed down completely and they weren't allowed to leave. Wow. Yeah, that's usually something that tourists are outside of. It's never really focused at, at people who are coming in from the outside. It's, it's usually indigenous groups that are striking uh, for, for better pay or better conditions. So it, might be over, so it might be stories that are a little overblown because we went to Belfast this May on a Rick Steves tour, and you've always heard Belfast is dangerous, but it, it wasn't dangerous at all. Yeah, usually the stories you hear are kind of the worst-case scenario, and you go in person and you find out not nearly as bad as it sounded. I think we've got to remember there are going to be these struggles uh, right. in, in, in Latin America and South America. I mean, there's going to be struggles, but until they target tourists, and right. occasionally tourists do get targeted, once they start targeting tourists, then I really pay attention. Otherwise, it's just, um, this is a little bit of reality. There's struggles in these countries, and I don't think it is reckless for tourists to go down there when these struggles are being played out. You've just got to use common sense, just like in, in Northern Ireland. And, uh, right. when, Wendy, when you were there. Oh, and that was beautiful. Rick, are you planning to start doing tours in South America? No, not at all. I'm just, okay. uh, I like doing this radio show, and it's a, a global focus instead of a Europe focus. So I'm we getting... were just curious. Thanks for your call, Wendy. Thanks. Have Thank a good you. day. We got Sheila on the line from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Sheila, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. I'm really excited to be on this call because we are booked to go to Quito and on to the Galapagos, and we're very excited about it. Oh, great. You're going to have a great time. I'm sure we will. We're actually doing one of the more luxurious tours because it's to celebrate my husband's 70th birthday. Good for you. Is this a tour that is in the Ecuador, uh, Quito, and the Galapagos? Or, uh, yep. Okay, so the whole thing. So my question is really re- twofold. One is related to the safety of the food and water because I've been hearing stories about lots of people having problems when they're there. And then the other one you sort of alluded to, and that had to do with altitude and getting around on your own as opposed to tours. We'll have a couple of days there as part of the tour before we go to the Galapagos, but we're staying over for a few more days on our own when we get back. Okay. Well, uh, in terms of tours, you can easily see a good part of Quito on your own. Taxis are very cheap. You can take a taxi just about anywhere for a dollar or two. And especially in Old Town Quito, the Colonial Center, it's just wonderful for walking around. Just take a you can take the electric trolley down there and get off at any stop and just wander till your heart's content or till you get out of breath. That sounds great. Julian, let's talk about the just the general ballpark uh, cost of traveling in Ecuador. Uh, you said a taxi is a dollar. Basically, what do you pay when you go out and you, and you find a good local restaurant that's uh, popular with locals but not tourists? Hmm, I mean, you can get a, an entire wonderful entire meal for $10 there. They just uh, Ecuador just switched over to the U.S. dollar, actually, uh, a year or two ago. They're one of the few countries in Latin America to do that. And so its prices have risen a little bit in the last few years since they do that. It used to be mm-hmm. one of the cheapest countries to travel in, in South America. And that's not true anymore, but it's still still very inexpensive to get around. I averaged about 40 to $50 a day. For room and board and sightseeing. Yeah. And, and the quality of the food in terms of being careful? Well, you, you should just take the normal precautions you would take in any developing country. You know, to stay clear tap water. Um, as they say, boil it. 
peel it, cook it, or forget it. Yeah. You know, so go to a, raw uh, vegetables, uh, lettuce might be bad. Uh, well-cooked vegetables, well-cooked meat, peel, yeah. thick, thick-skinned fruit peeled. That's the, the general safeguard. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, I didn't realize Ecuador didn't have its own currency. They've actually tossed out their own currency, and they just used dollars. Yep. They kind of oh. gave up on the sucre about two, three years ago All right. And because uh, it kept sliding in relation to the dollar. So now you can go down. You don't even have to exchange money. Well, now they're sliding on the dollar, and they don't even know it. Yeah. Sheila, thanks for your call. Thank you. Have a great time. We have Jerry on the line from Philadelphia. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? It's just four years ago right now, I I did sort of a do-it-yourself tour, and and we had a great time. The dollar had just uh, become the currency, so that, as you were saying, that made it it very easy. Uh, I wanted to, uh, before I forget, to mention a couple from Chapel Hill that has a couple days' time in... uh, uh, free in Quito. The Ad- is it Adavalo? The Adavalo, yeah, is a great, great day trip. That's easy to do on your own or by some sort of a tour agency or something. Yeah, the Saturday morning market in Otavalo is considered one of the most spectacular in Latin America in terms of handicrafts. I think it's a, at least four years ago it was the number of days during the week, but not every day. So you do have to check it. But I mean, I have a wonderful wool sweater that I love that I got for about $5 and another one for $7 and a hammock for $8. It's just amazing. And the people were, uh, they're friendly. I was there with a friend and his 11-year-old son for two weeks, and we had no trouble at all. And there was some native uprising sort of around that time over some labor issues, and, and it really didn't bother us at all, though we worried about it going there. So your, na- your your loved ones at home probably worried about it more than you did when you are right there. Exactly. It's always we, the case. We rented a car and drove over the Andes. Now, what um, was that like? You yeah. actually drove yourself over the Andes? Over the this uh, this almost uh, dirt road down into the valley uh, to the Napo River mm-hmm. to the close area of the of the Amazon and stayed for a, a couple hundred dollars literally in a wonderful night three-day thing at one of these nature preserves that takes you down the river and yeah uh, whatnot and talk about uh, that just a little bit uh, jerry and julian these nature preserves yeah there's a lot of places especially uh, as you were saying on the napa river um, a lot of lung- luxury jungle lodges um, some of which are pretty famous like sacha lodge there's a new one called the napa wildlife center and usually you like i said you fly into one of the nearest cities and take either a bus or usually a actually a motorized canoe down river for a couple hours and show up at this lodge that is fully appointed with hammocks and mosquito screens and great guides, and they'll take you out every morning and looking at birds and searching for monkeys and spotting alligators. I would think the guides are a key key ingredient of this uh, sort of uh, equation. We had a great native Quechuan guide, uh, and it really was a very inexpensive trip that I found on uh, on the Internet through uh, an agency in Quito. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to book. You can either do it at home here on the Internet, or just once you show up in Quito, there's 100 travel agencies waiting to take you. So this is your basic luxury jungle nature experience, paying a ransom on local stick scale, but relatively inexpensive for us, say $100 a day? Yeah, roughly. You can get maybe a four- to five-day trip, with including your meals and lodging for in the neighborhood of five $600, about. Wow. You might, might have to pay another 100 for the flight. You'd pay more than that just to buy a hotel on the beach in Mazatlan. <laughs> Exactly. A good thing is that you're also supporting the, the native societies. Uh, most of these are, are run, at least the best ones are sort of echo uh, resort sort of things that give employment and jobs to the, the Quechua people. So that's Yeah, some are run entirely by native uh, towns, like the one I just mentioned, the Napa Wildlife Center, is employs almost completely native guides. And you, one of the parts of a visit there is you go to a native community and visit with a shaman, and you have a translator to translate what he's saying to you, and they tell you about the different uses of the plants in the forest. It's a fascinating cultural experience. You visit a shaman? Yeah, you can do that on some tours. Does it feel like it's just set up for tourists next to the Snake Charming, or is it an actual uh, real visit? No, well, when you're 500 miles out into the Amazon jungle, you don't really feel like you're in <laughs> Disneyland. Wow, this is fascinating. Jerry, thanks for your call. You're welcome. All right. We got Kevin on the line from Texas. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great. It's a thrill to be talking to you. My wife watch it. My wife and I watch it every week on oh. KERA here. Oh, thanks for watching. That's a great channel. I uh and actually she's Ecuadorian as a matter of fact. 
and uh, we met we met in Italy. Strangely enough, that's why kind of why I'm calling. All right. Um, we met in Italy, got married in Greece, spent a year in Greece on Santorini, which I know you've been to. Right. And um, and actually, we went got married again, uh, so we could have a full wedding in Ecuador. Wow. So now you live in Texas, but you've got family in Ecuador. That's right, all over. And they come to visit from time to time, but uh, we go down there when we get a chance. What advice do you have? You've heard the conversation so far for our listeners thinking about Ecuador. Um, gosh, the last time we went, I told my wife, I said, he's really, you know, I know my country pretty well. I know 48 states here. I know Europe pretty well now. I said, I'd like to get to know your country. So we we uh, rented a, a car and, and drove all around. We went to Manaví, Esmeraldas. Uh, we got a chance to hit uh, Banos. Oh yeah, the hot spring resort, uh, which I actually recommend. It's fairly uh, the Banos is sort of a little European town, which is very clean and. Now that looks like it's way up in the Andes. Yeah, it is. It's about uh, it's almost a full day's travel from Quito, but it's got a spectacular setting. It's at the foot of a volcano that's actually started erupting a little bit in the last few years, and there are waterfalls spilling down the hillsides. It's on a river. And it's a pretty popular uh, tourist spot, so there's plenty of places to eat, lots of places to go on horseback rides or hikes. Hey, Kevin, you have uh, married an Ecuadorian. You've visited your in-laws down there. What is the feeling uh, among locals uh, as far as uh, accepting Americans and the political sort of feeling and so on? Um, gosh, you know, it's it's a pretty conservative country. Um, we, we export a lot of our culture to them, uh, so they... They, when they see North American, they're they're all enamored and excited to to know what what our country's about. I think I, I have this one memory of riding in a bus with a little girl, and and uh, since I speak Spanish, you know, we had a, a nice little conversation, and she wanted to to know what it's like to ride in a plane and uh, right. what is how big our country was and so forth. And that's kind of the general consensus, I think. So when you say it's a conservative country, does that mean they appreciate stability and law and order? And they like to that, well, they do. But uh, uh, I think there's a lot of corruption in the higher offices. Right. Uh, and, but you find that that's a common um, complaint in that country is that they don't like that. But the, uh, the non-educated people who are, uh, who are less educated out in the country uh, might not understand how to vote or, or something, and they might vote for uh, maybe a corrupt official or something along that lines. Mm-hmm. But the people in the cities who tend to be more educated vote for, for for change, and and uh, I, I think that there has been some some change. I've noticed that the last time we went, it was it's a lot cleaner. Seems like seems seems to me like that the dollarization has helped uh, stabilize the country's economics quite a bit. Yeah, it does seem to. So, from a traveler's point of view, Americans are received warmly. It's stable and comfortable as far as the feeling a traveler gets there, and there's not any sort of oppressive poverty that makes you uh, f- uh, well, feel Well, there used to be. There uh, used to in, be. But... In fact, the first time I went there, they, I was always surrounded by people, you know, right. begging. Money. Well, that's the image of Ecuador and, and Bolivia and different places in South America, but apparently that's changing. It's changed quite a bit, I would say. That's great. Yeah, and Ecuador has, has escaped a lot of the ups and downs like that its neighbors have, like Colombia and Peru and Bolivia. It's actually kind of an island of modest peace and prosperity in the midst of uh, a region that has seen its fair share of chaos. Maybe like Costa Rica is in Central America. Absolutely. All right. Kevin, thanks for your call. Sure. I've been talking with Julian Smith. He's the author of The Moon Handbook to Ecuador. And Julian, thanks so much for a a glimpse into this fascinating corner of South America. Thanks a lot, Rick. Thanks for having me. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And we're going to mix a little romance into our travel today because I've got with me a fascinating writer who's just written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. Travel journalist Jennifer Cox embarked on a journey most single women can only dream about. Like many fellow singles, Jennifer loved her job, but hated her love life. Tired of waiting around for Mr. Right, she decided to take a once-in-a-lifetime trip around the world to find her soulmate. She set out to date 80 men in 18 countries on four continents over six months. And right now, she's in our studio to share her adventure. Jennifer Cox, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Please don't tell my mother I did all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Around the world in 80 dates. Yeah, it sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> Great name for a book. Now, did you did you set out to write a book or did you just set out to, to find the right man? Absolutely. I had no intention of writing a book. I had been blessed with a wonderful career. I had worked for Lonely Planet for 10 years. I was a travel presenter in Britain with the BBC. I really was very, very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to travel the world. And one thing I did notice is that the harder I worked and the more fun I had working, the better I felt about myself. But my love life was not good. 
So and you took a sabbatical from your work, really, and I put actually, this trip together. Actually, I didn't even take a sabbatical. I realized it was so serious that the only way I could get a balance back in my life was by quitting my job and completely applying all of my skills, all of my energy attention to finding the right man for me. You needed love. I needed to trust somebody. Basically, I'd been with somebody for five years who hadn't treated me great. And do you know what? I... Could, I had to take part of the blame for myself. Mm-hmm. I just I couldn't just play the victim. And once sure. you realize you have played a role in your own unhappiness, you feel incredibly empowered to actually get the situation right and to work out. So you're at in a situation it. where some people could have been satisfied, but you really felt like you only have one life to love and you wanted to do better. Well, that's really the way of putting it. I believe that life is short and mm-hmm. I had been successful and I was thankful, but I really wanted to be happy. Now, how old were you, Jennifer, when you uh, set out on this? I was 37 when I set out. 37. Yeah. Okay. And you had a network of uh, people because of your work in travel publishing all over the world that could help you line up all these dates. So you you set up 80 dates all over the world in a six-month period. I wrote a soulmate job description. You were looking (laughs) for a soulmate, but you got to get a job description. Well, part of the reason for this was that I hadn't met them so far. And so the first thing I did, I wrote a relationship resume that helped me look at all my past relationships and the job that I had played, my responsibilities within each relationship. So to be a listener, to be a partner, to be a friend, whatever it was, to understand the pattern of men that I picked. And then my soulmate job description, because I think most of us, if we think about our our ideal partner, we tend to think, oh, they'd have tons of money and be amazingly good looking. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I actually sat down and thought about it, I actually wanted someone who was just pretty normal, someone I could talk with, someone. What that did was it made me realize that I tended to pick a certain man and that he didn't make me happy. And so I needed to avoid a certain type of person. So I had a sense of where I'd been. I had a sense of where I wanted to go. And I had something to show my friends to say, look, this is not a sex in the suitcase scenario. I am serious about meeting the right man. And you wanted it's like you wanted to be a a smart shopper. Yeah, exactly. Smart shopper, but also open my life to chance. I think when you're busy working, you tend to be um, someone who enjoys being in charge and in control. And I've realized that that was not a good energy to bring to a relationship. I needed to loosen up a little bit. And so the journey was as much learning about myself, learning to trust myself, understanding who I was as much as then understanding who I needed to be with. Now, you've written a journal of this experience in 370-some pages. Is it mostly a travel book or is it mostly a, a, a love story? Well, I have to say, I I think it's probably all of those, and I'm I'm not sort of copying out by answering mm-hmm. it that way. But I mean, firstly, I laugh when I think to myself, I probably saved myself thousands of dollars in therapy by writing the book because I had a chance to step back and understand what I'd been through. But one of the things that I said when the basically after two weeks, I started getting 200 emails a day from guys saying, you know, oh, I live in St. Petersburg. What day will you be here? Or oh, I'd love to, you know, have you come see me when you're in Barcelona. Um, I said to everybody, look, I'd really rather not go out on a dinner date. Right. I think that's brilliant. You say in this book that if you don't, right from the start, it can be a boring date and you're having a drag and you've got to spend the whole rest of the evening eating with somebody. You might as well do something that you know is fun and exactly. you can have a good time even though you know this is never going to go anywhere. Exactly. Because the, the, the important thing is it takes a moment, not a meal, to know if they're the one. And I sure. wanted to avoid date fatigue sure. and make sure that I was inspired. Well, I can imagine 80 dates in a row. That could be Well, exactly. But also, as a traveler, I wanted to see local life. And so that was an important part of the dates, to go and see how local people lived and what they did with their time. I'm talking with Jennifer Cox. She just wrote a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. And she spent six months all over the planet uh, going out with guys in 18 different countries. Jennifer, how is the love experience skewed by geography? Um, There definitely are national characteristics. I think that British guys tend to be very anxious, self-deprecating, and unsure of themselves with women, which makes them no Now, you're English, so you can say that with some experience. Exactly, exactly. Some bitterness probably as well. Um, Scandinavian guys, fantastic conversationalists, not macho guys, very good at speaking, very good at listening, so you completely have a fantastic date. Good, smart guys. Europeans 
Mediterraneans tend to be old-fashioned romantics. Now, tell Real, me about this. Young guys, you'd think that's old school, but mm, this macho stuff very much, survives in the Mediterranean very world. Very much. But do you know, very soulful as well. And I wonder, there was a sadness to them, and I wonder if maybe they're starting to feel that that just isn't appropriate anymore. I found that the Mediterranean guys tended to be the most introspective and very sort of bit, full of big gestures, but ultimately, I think, lacking in a sense of how to interact with modern women. Um, something that Australian and New Zealand guys don't have, laid back and very chatty. But I have to say the best daters in the world, not necessarily the most romantic men in the world, but the best daters in the world are American guys. Now, why is that? I think because American guys understand that a date isn't necessarily a marriage or isn't necessarily anything more than two people coming together to see how it goes. And so I think it's more institutionalized over here, whereas in other countries, the, the the boundaries are much more blurred. And I, I sort of, th the way that I um, refer to it is like, if it's a dance, most nationalities know a few steps. American guys take to the dance floor, the mm. dating dance floor, like Fred Astaire. They know all the moves and they're very confident. And so as a woman, you can respond to that confidently because you don't feel any anxiety coming from them. Wow. So now this, I'm talking to Jennifer Cox, who's just explored the world with dating in mind. She's written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates and American Guys. She says that... We know how to date better than the other guys. <laughs> no, now, that's very no pressure. And, and, and we should mention that um, after 80 dates, uh, the winning date, I'll, I'll tell you right now, is date number 55, right? Exactly. And it was an American guy. Gary. We'll talk about him later. Gary, sure. yeah. But right now, I just want to still get this cultural overview. Uh, you know, men hustle women uh -huh. differently. Uh -huh. You know, Italian men are just like famous yeah. for this sort of thing. What about you went to some Asian countries in Africa and Latin, Latin America and so on. Yeah. Does that change or is it, just, is it just your garden variety? This is a horny guy and he's just hustling me. Well, the thing is, I was serious about meeting the right guy. And so my criteria for agreeing to date anybody was that I genuinely had to think they were my soulmate. And so, for example, the guy who emailed from Hong Kong to say, um, I'm, I have a girlfriend, but it's not really working out that great. And on the off chance we split up by the time you get to Hong Kong, can we stay in conversation with each other? Or yeah. the, guy from, the guy from Indonesia who said, you're not that good looking and you make no effort with your hair. I like that kind of confidence in a woman. I'd like to take you out. So anybody who clearly was not my type of guy, and that would include any guy who was very hustly and rude. I didn't, I mean, I was very polite and respectful, but I I didn't put them on the list. And you weren't just looking for, as some of your friends called it, around the world in 80 lays, right? No, they teased me so much. I mean, everybody teased me. And it was interesting for me. We feel confident talking about sex, not about romance. And if I had wanted a short, brief fling, I would have stayed in London. Finding a guy who wants to see you for one night and never see you again is not a problem. That's London. Yeah, I mean, that's you don't need to travel for that, I exactly. guess. Exactly. And that was the point. I was, I, I had this mantra, which is, it's not about sex, it's about love. Well, if it's you're looking for a romance. soulmate, I guess that makes sense. Exactly. But now you had experience with 80 men. Yep. Um, would all of them jump into bed with you if you had let them? Um, I think... A few of them were certainly hopeful, and a number of them did try. But I was very clear with so everybody. So you come out of this with a rather positive uh, feeling about men. Oh, very much. Oh, look, I have to say, I mean, firstly, guys are very competitive. They all pulled out all the stops to put on the best possible dates. It was like they weren't dating me. They were dating the 79 other guys. But apart from... A, so that come, that's part of the male character is competitiveness. Very much. Very competitive. Determined to be the winner. They, they had a sense. You were the prize, and there was very 80 contestants. Much so. And it's funny, Gary, Wow. date number 55 even described it you know it was one time he mentioned you know so he said, I'm people, number 55 huh? yeah people saw you <laughs> as the prize he said to me but but they were respectful and they were they were good guys I'm talking with Jennifer Cox, who's written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. Uh, Jennifer, you learned a lot from this, and there's a lot of women listening that would like to mix a little romance in with their travels. It's a good way to sightsee and better understand the culture. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, What advice would you give women uh, who are going to be international traveling and, and they want to just uh, be able to meet and enjoy that little inside track to the local cultures? Well, I would firstly stress all the security aspects in terms of don't just pick guys up and wander off with them. These were all people who were friends of friends. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, a general relationship point for, for meeting anybody, and the love professor taught me this in Gothenburg, all relationships start with you. When you feel good about yourself, you attract people to you who enjoy that about you. And you had some tips in your book that says uh, these, these sort of travel tips for somebody on the road from romance. and. You need to feel good about yourself before exactly. you've got to look in the mirror and, and get out of the bed on the right side and all that sort of thing. Basically, we tend to go 
for people who we see ourselves in. So we're attracted to what we recognise of ourselves in other people. So when you are having a bad hair day or you're feeling a bit fat, Mm -hmm. you attract somebody who doesn't have a great opinion of you because that's how you feel about yourself. And travel makes us blossom. Travel tends to bring out the best in us. So your book was sort of an open uh, journal of your thoughts and the things you learned as you travelled. I really felt that writing this book was a wonderful opportunity to be very honest, but also to have uh, have people help me get through the journey. Okay, now I just want to talk about love here because you've been out there as a journalist, like studying this hands-on, you could sure. say. Now, um, <laughs> what about love at first sight versus learning to love somebody? Do you believe in, you've dated 80 guys all around the world. Is it? How does that work? Up to date 54, I thought it was I was never going to meet the one. And I thought maybe you love at first sight didn't exist. And then I met Gary, date number 55, and it all just happened. You know, I thought he looked amazing. He made me feel wonderful. I could have talked with him forever. Love at first sight is feeling that you have known someone your whole life. But okay. so you then need to get... There's a chemistry at first sight. Exactly. Really. Yeah. But, you know, you then need to get to know them. And so to have that compelling attraction is only ever the start of it. The work still has to be done. Now talk to me about this issue because you know in my dating days I used to I was dating people from all sorts of different cultures and that was fascinating but I ended up marrying somebody from Omaha, Nebraska. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I'm an American and I'm this traveler Omaha, Nebraska. That's the opposite of travel and I think that was a pretty smart move. Um, How did you factor that in? Were you intrigued by people who were exotic but you ended up meeting an American. Exactly. I mean, I'm British, so it was slightly different Mm -hmm. for me. Um, But... I basically had no idea who I was going to end up with. I wanted to travel through different cultures because I thought this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to find out who my ideal person is. No holds barred, no distance not travelled. And who that person was, I had no idea, and I was very open to finding that out. But are you more likely to find a soulmate in your culture, or does the culture not matter? I think that we are attracted to, as I say, what we recognise of ourselves in other people. And culturally... We find the idea of foreign people more exotic, but we tend to stick with what we know. Now, what was the most exotic place you had a date in? Um, I think probably overall it would be going to Bangkok and going to the um, Lacrong Festival um, and putting the lotus blossom boats on the water with Toy the male supermodel. And, uh, Toy and the male supermodel? Male supermodel. Half Italian, half Thai. The most gorgeous guy I've ever seen in my life. And he basically took me to this festival. Was it festival. like lust at first sight? Would you know the funny thing was, I mean, firstly, I'd met Gary by then because after I met Gary, well, I continued dating. Gary. That's right. Gary's 55. You've got to do 80. Okay. Exactly. So do you know every... Toy the male supermodel. Male supermodel. Half Italian, half Thai at a lotus festival. You're putting little beautiful flowers in the water and making wishes, and it's all it's all to do with love. And but basically, he like every single one of my dates was at a crossroads, and he just said, "You know, Jennifer, it's not easy just being a beautiful head and a pair of shoulders. I want to do more with my life." And so, by the end of our date, he decided he was going to work in a refugee camp in Africa. And so he was a great guy. And often, you know, on a lot of the dates, we had a chance to talk about our lives and what we wanted to do with them, like all travelers do. Now, when you travel, you have to say goodbye a lot. That's one thing that's occurred to me. I've met so many great people and I've said goodbye so many times. You had to say a pile of tough goodbyes. Yeah. And sometimes it was good to say goodbye and it was hard because I wanted to say goodbye and they didn't. And as I said, I wanted to be respectful to my dates and, and not be dishonest. But one of the things that I found actually since I finished my journey is that I hear from a ton of the guys that I dated and I don't hear from them anymore as a potential girlfriend they sort of almost treat me like a sister and they tend to talk to me about people they're seeing or wow. relationships that haven't worked out. Well, so, that speaks to the quality, the color of people you set up for these dates, I think. Well, I mean, yeah. I hoped that they would all be the one and they felt the same about me. Now, you wrote this. The biggest lesson I learned is when faced with both love and temptation, you have to choose which you want the most. Exactly. To love and be loved by one man or to love the feeling of endlessly falling in love. Yes. Talk about that just a minute. Date 76 turned out to be my second soulmate. And I was in love with Gary, but then I met Jean DeMarco on the South Island of New Zealand, and I knew I was at a crossroads. And so I had this huge steam drain journey um, all the way through the, the hinterland of the South Island of New Zealand, and I had to deal with that dilemma. Was I going to stay with Gary, or was I going to be tempted by Jean? And in other words, you had to commit yourself and then turn off your 
lock up your heart. Exactly. Or understand that I didn't want it locked ever. And I wanted to constantly have that buzz ah. and thrill of falling in love. And do you know what? Even though I carried on dating after I met Gary, and he agreed with me, otherwise I wouldn't have ever done that to him. But I realized that I loved this man and that I wanted to be with him and that I didn't ever want to lose him. Date, date 55, you exactly. met Gary at the Burning Man Festival. Yep, in the Nevada desert. We were both working at a crazy dating theme camp called the Costco Soulmate Trading Outlet. And the funny thing was he wasn't even a date. He was just the camp cook. And uh, we just literally just... He wasn't set up as one of your dates? No, I know. Ah. How crazy is that? All my friends were so mad. They're all competitive journalists. and They wanted to prove they had the best contact books your in the world. Your friend set up 80 dates for I you know. and you stumbled onto the guy. There's a lesson there. I know. Fate. That's what I said. You can control it. You can contain it. But ultimately, it will wiggle out and take charge. You fell in love with Gary. Gary fell in love with you on date 55. And Gary really let you go then for 25 more dates. I don't know how he did it. But yes, he well, said, he, I understand. He had you faith in your in your love, I guess. Exactly. I mean, and look, I mean, if, I'd, if the tapes had been turned, I have to say, I would have said, no way. <laughs> you stay here and be in love with me. <laughs> Fascinating travel story. We've been talking with Jennifer Cox. She is the author of Around the World in 80 Dates. And I'm sure you've got the um, wheels turning in a lot of people's heads. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you very much for sharing your uh, adventure. Rick, thank you so much for giving me the chance to share it. Thank and you. Good luck. Best wishes with you and Gary. Exactly. I'll go home to him now. <laughs> Date number 55. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> we went well together. You're fun. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's do that again sometime. I mean, but you have good. a nice, gentle manner, and you're oh. very thoughtful. It's very nice to watch you. Nice work. to hear. Good. Yeah. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. You can also participate in discussion boards on a variety of travel topics and submit your questions and comments. That's at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.